Shake your lethargy. Come alive to innocence once more. Believe past your own jaded cynicism. Pretend you are young once more. Jump up with a spring in your feet. Fall breathlessly in love again. Let the colors of the world wash over your walls, brushing the grays away. Let the sunlight of hope flood through your doubting self. Oh, let the music play. Dance till you ache and drop. Laugh till you cry. Sing till your lungs burst and journey till the very road ends and dream by the moonless, starless nights. Sleep with a secret smile on your lips, your body flush with the imprints of lips. Come alive, my dearest. Reclaim yourself from the living dead. Life beckons. Srividaya Srinivasan. Welcome to the Lost Traveler podcast. I am your ever-loving host, Henry Cameron Allen. And I am here today with a very special luminary, I would say, Tina Davidson, who is a brilliant classical composer, what, 45 years now in her career. Uh, her work has been done, performed all over the world. Uh, and she's she's renowned in her field and has also kind of a very interesting memoir uh, about her her life and time. And I'm just so excited to meet you. Welcome. Oh, I am so happy to be here with you today. Yes. Where are you based now? I am in Lancaster, Pennsylvania. So I lived in Philadelphia for 25 years, and that city was extremely good to me and to my music. And then I remarried and moved out here. Um, I am separated and divorced from my husband. And I decided, you know, I was trying to figure out if I was going to go back to Philadelphia because it, it is such a great musical city or go to New York. And honestly, Lancaster is just a train ride away, you know, an hour from Philadelphia, a little bit more, and maybe two and a half hours from New York. So why leave this beautiful countryside, you know? Um, so I'm just very happy to have this uh, home uh, and my little garden and my little dogs and uh it, it's working out really well for me that's beautiful half of my family is is from philly my mother's uh, oh. side of the family she was born there and so i have oh, okay many happy memories of childhood going to visit family there and i still have some family there so it's nice to yeah. have yeah action as well it's a great yes city. yes phil it is a great city and i think it's Again, I think a lot of those kinds of cities are are, are greater for younger people. <laughs> um, what I noticed is, you know, I, I did love being there. I love bringing up my daughter. I love the diversity. I love the, the free range of cultural activities and city activities. And, um, but, you know, the noise and the the trash and I think the noise was the hardest for me I am not someone interestingly enough as a lifetime musician and composer I don't like to really listen to music very much you know and, I've heard that a lot you know, when, 
Yeah. And so living in close quarters in a city life, you get a lot of noise. Now, I, I happen to love ambient noise. I love the noise of nature. I actually love sort of traffic noise. You know, um, I'm always interested in sound. But I think that music kind of interferes with the interior music that's playing in my ears. So uh, it's nice to have um, to be free of that. It's really interesting, you know, where I, I, I am in, in a remote, tiny, ancient village in the southwest of Spain. It's it's a rural environment. And yet, you know, the, the closest city is about 40 miles away. And so if I want an urban landscape, it's easy enough to get to. If I want the ocean, <laughs> it's a day trip. You know, that's okay. beautiful sound. I, I Before I moved <laughs> to Europe about six and a half years ago, I was in Gloucester, Massachusetts. So I was okay. surrounded by the sea and I miss that. Mm. I do love mm. that kind of a cacophony, you know, um, but I understand. Oh, that that you know when you're when you're immersed in your career as an artist, uh, that it's important to have another side of yourself that that takes a break from. And I think that as uh, for me, as getting older, I have less uh, flexibility around some of those things. Um, I, and I, you know, also. You know, uh, I live a kind of, you know, I think artists always enjoy their solitude and, you know, search it out because actually when I'm writing music, I don't, I always feel like I'm surrounded by sound and, you know, I have this sort of second life that I'm living. Mm. I have my washing the dishes and walking the dog's life or taking care of children life, doing laundry life. But then I have this uh, separate life, which is the composing life. And um, so I need to have time. I have a lot of adjustment internally and have less patience for the external when did you when did you notice that shift? One of the one of the projects I'm working on right now as a universal life skills educator, mentor, and I don't know, student, I would say. <laughs> um, I'm working on a project right now called I'm calling Age Education. I think that it's a it's a universal life skill. It's not just about aging, but aging well. And it's something that could certainly be taught from an early age at every stage of life, but isn't and hasn't been for a long time. There was an era, which I'm certainly, I'm 57 now. And I remember the days when grandparents were more present and mm. sometimes even <laughs> living with the family. So you saw <laughs> the aging <laughs> process and you know, unfold in front of you and and to be a witness to that was a great classroom for it. And, and so, yeah, so I'm, I'm sort of sitting in that, that threshold and that liminal space between my, you know, autumn and winter, I guess. And, and uh, your, your second and third act. <laughs> my second and third act, or the segunda primavera, as they say. Yeah, yeah, right? yeah. Well, you, and I love you... the idea. Right. I love the idea of 
So I just turned, uh, I'm 70. Mm -hmm. And um, I I know that I was listening to an interview with Jane Fonda and she called this her third act. And one of the things that she said, usually in the third act, that's when it it's, it's really about making sense of the second and the, the first and the second act or bringing them together or concluding the story or, you know, pulling all the parts together. And I thought that was such a wonderful metaphor. Um, now, I published my memoir. I started writing it just when I was 60. Okay. And I think that's that's not surprising in a kind of funny way. I think I was um, I was. You know, my field is very is has a lot of ageism in it. Yeah. You know, the arts love the young artist. They want to find the new thing. What's the new artwork or the new music or the new theater production? And uh, music field in particular is very ageist. So I was feeling some of that. And I thought, well, I would like to start writing not only about my life, which is kind of tangentially interesting, but about my composing process and how I compose. So this memoir is little short stories of my life at, at you know, sort of varying stages. But the next chapter is always a chapter from my, my journals, which I was writing in my 30s and my 40s, that are actually some of them are looking back at my childhood and trying to understand them. And some of them are actually writing music about not only what's going on for me right at that moment, but how I was thinking of my history. Yeah. And I am a composer who uh, really writes out of self-understanding. I'm kind of my own landscape. And I, and I want to say that, you know, composers and artists do, do it very differently. They have their own unique way of doing it, but this is the way I do it. And I'm interested in my emotional growth and my spiritual growth and my connection to my interior and my exterior world. And that's always been my sense of exploration. Hi, this is Henry Cameron Allen. For all of us, especially in these times, life is a journey fraught with challenges. But I'm convinced that the keys to unlocking your full potential are already within you. That's why I started Guy Wire Counseling and Mentoring. A Guy Wire is a stable cable that lends stability to a freestanding structure during unstable times. As your mentor and counselor, your Guy Wire, I will guide and support you as we discover the power of your inner awareness. I'll help you identify your purpose, even through your grief. I'm an internationally certified grief and survival counselor, focusing mainly but not exclusively on men's mental health, and I'm a lifetime member of the Complementary Therapists Accredited Association and the International Holistic Therapists and Course Providers. I know that the world is a fractured place. I believe that together we can simplify your grief journey and achieve self-actualization by recognizing the common threads that bind us all, universal life skills. With the support, the stable support of a guy wire during your unstable times, you can develop the skills you need to stand strongly, solidly on your own with confidence and grace. 
Skywire is a free service to members of the Lost Travelers Club and a low-cost alternative for everyone else. Let's spend an hour together and see where it takes us. You have nothing to lose. Visit guy-wire.org now to start your journey toward your purpose. Thanks. So getting back to <laughs> ageism, <laughs> that I started writing this book in my 60s, I think makes sense. Mm -hmm. It was a time when I wanted to reflect about where I had been and where I am now. Um, and also for the music field, start to talk about the composing process and bring kind of words to it. You know, it's kind of wording, how, how, does, how do I do this? So it's not this kind of weird, mystical, magical thing that composers do somehow, you know, because they're geniuses. And I, you know, I just think that that distances the audience instead of bringing them closer, it kind of says, oh, well, classical music is, a, you know, it's not really about me. Right. It's about them or right. it's about, I don't know, something else. And I want it to be like literature or, um, or nonfiction or fiction, that it's relatable, that composers or artists are really writing about who they are in this time. It's kind of a documentation from their point of view of what's going on. And certainly I think you can say that about great classical composers that you get a sense of the lifestyle of Beethoven's time and that he was probably kind of a little, yeah, a little bit of a grumpy old man, you know, you know, he had some hard knocks and he wasn't always too happy about it. Um, and so well, look at Bach, look at Bach. Of, Bach outlived yeah. 13 of his 20 children. And I listen to Bach in a very different way now, having known that, being what, what we call a peregrine myself. It's a new word for parents who have mm -hmm. their kids. Um, you know, I I was researching and finding who in history, who no, what notable people uh, that we will recognize were peregrines and how did that inform inform their lives mm -hmm. and their and their work and mm -hmm. find out that Bach was a 13 time peregrine I mean think of the beautiful well, and not only that he, he almost always signed his works to the greater glory of God that's right and I have I thought a lot about that so his audience was God yeah. It was just this personal thing that he was doing. He wasn't, I don't think, you know, um, there's a wonderful new uh, biography of Mozart and the author says, you know, he didn't think that Mozart was writing music that he thought was going to last. That wasn't, it was entertainment. It was kind of like a TV show. They, you know, you could hear it and then it was gone. You know, they didn't have recordings of it. Right. So I I do, I do love that idea that Bach was really writing. Uh, I don't know if for God is the right way, but in relationship to God, sort of, this is what I have for you, God, you know, and mm -hmm. it was just this personal thing. It wasn't, you know, uh, and a lot of his music he wrote as uh, sort of studies for pianists. 
to get right. better. Like all the all the preludes and fugues and the inventions. A lot of that was just, you know, kind of functional. Mm -hmm. But anyway, getting back to yes. <laughs> aging. Getting back, I'll get to, you back age, to it. Education and yes. let, let your education. Yeah. I do think I am fascinated by my artistic aging and what it means. And I am starting to write another book now. Um, and it was going to be called Being 60, but, you know, I'm 70 now, so <laughs> being 70. <laughs> but what happens, I mean, I think we know that our energy changes, but what happens to the creative process? I think we might have an ideal that, like, Mozart was dictating his requiem, you know, his last notes. Of course, he was 35. He wasn't, you know, he, he was sort of in the middle of things. But, you know, what is, how how do I uh, manage my creativity? How has it changed? Mm -hmm. I think as a younger person in my 30s and 40s and even 50s, it was almost obsessive. Like I had a problem, like I had an addiction, you know, that I was always thinking about it. My, my connection was sort of very narrow and kind of laser focused. Mm -hmm. um, and that might have had to do also with some about visibility, wanting to be seen as an artist, wanting to be recognized, wanting to be heard, etc. And I feel now that my creativity, it, it's not laser focused anymore. It's kind of oozing, <laughs> kind of yeah. oozes around. So, you know, I've written a memoir that's been well received. I'm thinking of writing something else. Um, I, I have, you know, created programs that advance teaching young people composing without knowing anything about music. So I've I've done a lot of creative things. I I am actually do a lot of pastels right now. I do a lot of journaling. That's really part of my process. And so I'm just wondering if maybe this time period is kind of about oozing more than being driven. Mm -hmm. So it's coming out sort of on all sides of me rather than just being channeled into one you know into one thing and that really interests me well you have you have a body of work and you have a body mm -hmm. of your life that you can just sort of lean back into and 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 reflect you know i'm finding that now at 57 that that i'm actually uh you know i've had a creative career as a theater artist and um, and it's changed. Something has shifted. And mm -hmm. to be able to feel almost less in control, a sense of surrender to mm -hmm. where I am and how my body, mind, and spirit are evolving still at 57. Mm -hmm. And my company, my theater company, explores through the art of audio theater, the dance across the threshold between the human physical and the human spiritual. 
that's where I'm living right now is in that liminal space. Mm -hmm. uh, you can find the work that we've already started in rescuing the stories that are dying with the people that carry them, folk and fairy tales from around the world and producing them in an artisanal way using the craft that I've developed over my lifetime, using the the you know and the, the navigating of of grief uh to to inform mm. how i curate you know uh my work and and grieving is also a universal life skill you know just as aging well is we're all gonna do it we're all gonna do it how do we do it how do we navigate those things and when do we notice those signposts right Are you tired of feeling run down? Do you wish there was a natural, non-invasive, drug-free way to improve your overall health and well-being? If so, then let me introduce you to the Super Patch Company. Super Patches are a range of small neurotech patches that can help with a variety of issues, including sleep, immunity, pain mitigation, athletic performance, focus, anxiety, and stress. They're safe for everyone to use, and they're backed by a 30-day money-back guarantee. So what are you waiting for? Order your Super Patches today. Now available in the EU, UK, Turkey, Canada, and the US. If you're ready to take control of your health, you can find out more online at diannedinkmeyer.superpatch.com. Super Patches, there's a patch for that. Did you did you grow up in an environment that was supportive of your not just your passion but your purpose? I certainly my mother uh, was a, a literature professor and she was an amateur violinist mm. and so we all had to play an instrument. Um, I always felt that uh, my my father is a scientist and he played jazz piano. Yeah. Uh, I have his mother's grand piano, Steinway grand piano, that's now a hundred years old. Oh. Um, my mother was a, an avid a violinist. So she was part of the local orchestra. And then um, I lived in a foster home for uh, uh, three and a half years. And she was a harmonica player. Wow. And I, I kind of always sort of imagined that they had received this call to be musicians, but for some reason or another, they hadn't done it. And that I was the one who was um, uh, answering the call yeah. uh, to be a, a, an artist. So, and I think... Um, you know, I went into composition. I mean, I was always a pianist, always played a lot of piano, but I was also a reader. I loved to read it. Sometimes I would sneakily try to read my book, especially when I was younger, while I was practicing. So I'd actually have my mem my music memorized and put my book up, <laughs> play <laughs> my music. And that didn't really work well. My teacher caught on really fast. But I was a really, I was a good pianist by the time I went to college. And uh, that's 
uh, where they, music one was always, they always felt that uh, composers should be performers and performers should be composers. So mm. I ha was required to write music and I was a little bit horrified. But after a semester, it just seemed like that's all I wanted to do. And I think there's a quote uh, by the philosopher Mumford uh, that the artist endeavor is to be heard, but not to be found. Mm. To be heard, but not to be found. And I think that very much resonated to me. I had a lot of interior stuff that I hadn't worked out in my life. And music, it's so anonymous. You can write about your feelings and your anger. You can write and nobody knows because it's music. Right. So it was kind of the perfect vehicle for me. And I, I was more than smitten. I was... Uh, you know, I, I can't even say I was passionate about it. It was sort of like I had to. Um, oh, and I, I think, yeah. well, but I do think it was that I needed to understand more about my growing up and my traumas and my all the stuff that had happened to me, which you can read about in my books. Mm -hmm. um, but, um, and I, I didn't have the language to do it yet. So the music really became a great vehicle. I was really pretty uh, severely depressed uh, at certain times. I could dissociate like, oh man, I could really dissociate. You could say something to me that was kind of, uh, you know, brought, was scary to me and I would be gone <laughs> for weeks. <laughs> um, but it was really the birth of my daughter um, I was in my, uh, just had turned 30. And I realized that I could hand all this over to her. It could be her legacy. Right. Unless I really went to work. And I did some, and fortunately, I, I had a great support system. I, I had great friends who uh, recommended that I work with this therapist and did you know yoga and meditation just all the things that you need to do to create a more healthy life mm -hmm. and I think what's interesting about my music is that the first 10 years that I was composing so my 20s I don't know if that music is very good I, I kind of feel like it was written out of disconnection mm. And when I start, when my daughter was born, that was the first time that I was really writing music that I thought, oh, this is, this is good. No, you have to get rid of, you. it takes a while to find your own voice. Right. Yes. And it takes a while to almost, it's almost like you're, you have to write a lot of junk to get it out of your system. <laughs> so you kind of, you know, um, and, and that doesn't mean that other artists do it that way, but that, that was my way. Um, so, and the piece that I was writing when my daughter was born was called Blood Memory, A Long Quiet After the Call. Mm. And the idea that, that your inheritance has a lot of memories that you don't even know about that impacts you. And that second decade of composing music, I was writing music about my, my, 
sort of traumatic journey. Um, and then when I got out of my that second decade, the third decade, I started being free enough to be interested in what was outside of me. So how am I connected to the earth or to nature or to whatever you want to call the energy out there, God or the spirit or whatever that was. And that has been very much, uh, you know, for the next 20 years, that was really a preoccupation. What was that relationship? So I have a piece, for instance, that's called the delight of angels because angels, according to Christian and Jewish tradition are so joyful to be in the presence of God that they dance endlessly. They just dance the, the entire time. And I love that idea of being that connected, that it was just all joy. Um, a piece that, a more recent piece is called Barefoot, which is about being outside and sort of touching the earth with my feet. But it's also about the burning bush it, uh, that Moses comes across and he has to take off his shoes right. to be in the presence of God. He has to be un, unshod, you know, and I, I, so that piece is also about, about that. And now I would say I'm writing more quiet pieces, more personal pieces. Um, I can't really quite describe it, but I have a piece called Hush, which is about, it's for violin and piano. And it's about being a parent uh, or a caretaker and comforting someone. Mm -hmm. You know, it's going to be okay. You can hush. It's fine. You know, I'm here. Um, I have another piece called Hum, which is, you know, when I was growing up, gosh, men whistled all the time and yeah. women hummed. <laughs> You know, they don't do it anymore because they're plugged in and it's like a lost art. And so I I just was wanting to write about hearing somebody outside of me, this little out of tune humming, you know, and and what a joyful thing that is. Um, I love that. Hey, are you like me? always looking for ways to make a positive impact in the world? Well, then join me in sponsoring Desire Child Care Organization. We are a legally incorporated, fully volunteer-based organization in Uganda, committed to providing essential needs, holistic arts-based education, and a safe family environment to 33 vulnerable children, ages two to 14. Your monthly sponsorship can help improve the lives of these kids toward a better future. Desire Child Care is different from any other charity I know because, well, we have zero administrative overhead. Every penny goes to the kids. And we have a plan toward self-sufficiency through agriculture. So support is temporary. It's kind of like a, a leg up. Visit desirechildcare.org to learn more and get involved. Let's empower and inspire the Desire Kids together. Thanks. There are a lot of parallels here. I also uh, left, I left home at 13 and was fostered for a time. And that's, that was a real pivotal moment for me. And that's where I learned the word integrity. 
And mm -hmm. that's sort of been my foundation stone for the rest mm -hmm. of my life. I could have gone down a very mm -hmm. dark road of self-destructiveness and others as well. And, uh, and I didn't because somebody literally put the word in my hand and told me to go look it up <laughs> on my 14th birthday. And it was, you Perfect. know, those pivotal moments that change the course of your future that, yes. you know, they inform us as artists, don't they? And they keep, it's the gift that keeps on giving in a way. They inform yes. our parenting, they inform our grieving, they inform our, our cycles uh, in our lives. And you know, like you say, to to be able to reflect back. And the title of your book, uh, Let Your Heart Be Broken, uh, really resonated with me because there is a gift in the brokenness. There is, you know, Rumi is famous for having said, your cracks are where the light gets in, right? Well, yes. I, oh I my say gosh. that our, our cracks are where the light gets out. The light that we As well. are right it, equally and 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 that's been yes. in the in the ether for me this past year especially is really understanding that there's as much light within as there is without let me read you something from the book uh, I would it's really love sort of the ep 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 epigraph so i was at the open center i had read a lot of books by stephen levine i had had a heart condition for about nine years and reading his works were really wonderful. He worked with Kubler-Ross on death and dying mm -hmm. and he wrote these books. He, he was, you know, did a lot of meditation and, yeah. um, and this was really during the AIDS crisis. And, you know, I think I feel like we've forgotten a lot about the AIDS crisis and sure. how devastating that was. Uh, that our friends, especially in the arts community, were dying, and they were dying young and just horrible, painful deaths. And there were so many loved ones who were taking care of them. Yeah. And so this was a conference uh, uh, that had a lot of AIDS caretakers in the audience, and he was addressing them. Uh, so <clears throat> an audience member stands. What is the meaning of life, he asks. Stephen Levine, author, poet, best known for his works on death and dying, sits on the large stage looking down at a hundred expectant faces. I am at the Open Center in New York City at a two-day seminar. He relaxes back into his chair. I'm asked that all the time, he replies, his voice burnishing the microphone. And I really don't know. He pauses. Looking to the side, he turns back smiling. But I think the meaning of life is to let your heart be broken. And then I write, the heart, the round sphere of your being, let your heart be broken. Allow, expect, look forward to the life you have so carefully protected and cared for, period. Broken, cracked, rent in two, heartbreakingly, your heart breaks and in the two halves rocking on the table is revealed rich earth, moist, dark soil, ready for a new life to begin. Mm. And and that's the way I start the book. Um, 
that and and what I loved about him was he said let you know sort of just allow it to happen don't stop resisting it it's sort of uh it's not even accepting it's just sort of this sort of quiet pose of it's gonna happen so let it happen and everyone's heart gets broken all the time I mean your kids grow up and they leave the household your heart is broken at the loss of your you know these children you haven't lost them but you've lost that life that you had I mean so in large and small ways I think it's just a part of our life and um so that was really what my memoir is about that idea that um there's a way of walking through this is my way of walking through this is what i did um and and once you have had dealt with a big trauma it doesn't mean that it's not going to happen again you know it's not it's not like you get a fix or you get a pass <laughs> you know um, yeah like it's it's not like you paid your dues you know it's just it, it's gonna whatever is gonna happen is gonna happen and um we don't get to choose but we can choose how we deal with it and uh very much this book at one point the book was called grief's grace the mm -hmm. idea that grieving gives you a kind of a grace uh it is it is um I don't want to say it's a gift. That seems a little. Um, there are gifts in it. There are gifts to be. Yes. In, it. in fact, yes. I just, um, you know, my my foundation, the Lost Travelers Club, that this podcast is mm -hmm. a funding source for and awareness raising about it. It's an empowerment organization for peregrines, for parents who have outlived their kids. Yes. Uh, it's not a healing circle. Yes. We have, we have groups. Um, one is dedicated. It's a fellowship of fathers that's dedicated to exploring the grieving mm. of men, which we don't get to talk about and we're taught not to. And uh, you no, know, no, 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 we expected, don't. We're expected not to. And so we started a, a weekly podcast on YouTube. And it's a different constellation of men every week right. talking about their grief journey. And the one that we posted last week um, was specifically about finding the gifts in our grief. And you and I wouldn't be having this conversation had my son not left the planet when he was meant to. Mm -hmm. and so that's a huge gift. Uh, that's one of them. My theater company would not be what it is or or mm -hmm. existence in the same way. I wouldn't be living in Spain. I, we have to look back and see how one thing has led to the next. And it's very simple to do right. that reflection, but it's not right. easy. It's not always easy to revisit. And I, my experience with Yes, my experience with grief is that it will wait for you. It's very patient. It's, you know, you think you think you've passed by it, or you managed to escape. Or maybe in my case, I didn't know I had grief. Mm. And um, I was 
quite depressed as a child. Uh, not that I, I had words to talk about it because, you know, I think our language skills have gotten so much better with our children and asking questions and really listening to them. Um, in my case, I was in a foster home. I was born in Sweden and I was placed in a hostel, foster home when I was six months in Sweden. And I lived in Sweden in a family for three, three years, three and a half years. And then one day, this beautiful young professor came and um, she adopted me. Uh, she got to know me over a couple of months and I left. And I always said, as a young person, as a teenager, that when I was when I was asked, "Oh, what was it like in Sweden?" I said, "Well, it was dark. All I know is it's dark. All when I look back at three and a half, it's dark, and suddenly it's light." Yeah. Um. And I, I, I grew up as an adopted child. Not that my mother treated me differently or that I wasn't integrated in the family, but I always sort of knew, you know, things are pretty shaky. You know, if I was put in a foster home at six months and then I was adopted at three and a half, didn't know what was going to happen next, you know, but you couldn't talk about it mm. because you also had to be grateful because you'd been saved. And my mother didn't want to talk about it. So when I was... um 21, I happened to be back in Sweden, taking care of a 13-year-old daughter uh, of a friend, of a family friend. And after the two months, I was there for about two months, I thought just sort of the last week, I thought, oh, maybe I'll go find out what, where my real parents are. So I went down to the agency and she had a letter and she said, well, this is from your birth mother. I'm reading this. And she oh. asked me about my life. And she said, um, your adopted mother is your birth mother. You were adopted by your birth mother. Whoa. Whoa. How often do we hear that ever? Never. Yeah, not too often. Sponsorship and listener support of the Lost Traveler podcast benefits the Lost Travelers Club a volunteer-operated charitable foundation under United Charitable, a 501c3 public charity. Peregrine is the proper noun we now use to describe a parent who endures the loss of their beloved child, forever carrying their memory, and embarking on a lifelong journey of grief, resilience, and hope. The Lost Travelers Club provides programs, resources, and empowerment opportunities for peregrines globally who are navigating their grief journey. Parents of child loss, getting there together. You can support this important work by becoming a sponsor of this podcast or visiting www.losttravelers.club for more information or to make a donation. Thanks for listening and for your continued support. I want to say I want to say two things on behalf of my mother. It was a very smart plan. I was an illegitimate child. She was a young professor in the 50s. She would not have been able to get a job. However, it became a secret and she didn't tell anyone 
And um, secrets have a lot of bad mojo attached to them. They're very powerful and they're very destructive to everyone, not just to me. Mm. But getting back to grief, what I didn't realize until I was doing therapy uh, around the age of 30 was that I also had been grieving for 30 years for the family that I had lived in. That was my family. That was my mother and my father and my brothers. That was my my city, my language, my country. And I left and it was if a bomb went off and destroyed them. And uh, it, I think a lot of my depression came from that inability to integrate that loss. And that, and when I started doing therapy and realized that, I must have spent the, the next two years crying. Yeah. Not only for that loss, but for the loss of being brought up as an adopted child when I wasn't. Right, right. For having those feelings that I wanted to be part of a body or part of a history, and I wasn't. So that's why I say grief will find you. Mm-hmm. <laughs> kind of chases after you. And my experience with grief was that it was it was like this horrible storm that just rained and crashed and just flooded everything. Yes. And then it amazing. sort of eased it eased up a little bit. And then it was horrible over again. You know, everything right. was mildewed and just awful. A hundred years of solitude. Yes. And then it started to ease. That's what and then the tsunami, next time, yeah. That's what tsunamis yeah. do. They ebb and they flow. And I talk about that a lot. That's why I call it a tsunami because they are extremely destructive. You cannot plan for them. They come, they, you're, you're doing fine. And then wham, they knock the wind out of you. And wham. trusting that you can float, trusting that it will ebb. But yes. we're not taught that. We're not taught. And then one day, it's one day you sort of see a little bit of sunlight. You can't believe it. Oh, and then it clouds up again. That's right. <laughs> but you saw a little sunlight. It's just this amazing thing. Oh. And and now when I grieve, I usually feel it in my body. I'm feeling this thing, and then I go. Is that depression? I go, well, you haven't been depressed for years. I go, oh, I bet it's grief. I wonder, I wonder what ticked it off. Let's go back and review what was said. You know, what was, was there anything that gave you that little, um, yeah. So I, I, I won't say I love grief, but it has given me my life back. Yeah. Well, and there are, what are called glimmers, which is the opposite of a trigger. And to notice mm-hmm. those glimmers, to notice those glimmers of sunlight when they are there, even amidst mm-hmm. the clouds, is so right. important on the grief journey. I'm working on uh, developing an app right now called My Tsunami <laughs> to help people through those triggers and bring them back mm-hmm. to a place of glimmer. And 
so that they can get mm -hmm. to the next one. You know, I think oh, that, and trust, trust. Yes. Well, you know, I, I had a one. I think trusting the, the nature of it. When I studied at the National Theater Conservatory for theater, um, I had a wonderful speech and voice teacher who on the first day of class was talking about the concept of surrender. And she said, surrender is not about giving up anything. Surrender is about giving in. I loved that. It really resonated with me. She said, um, you know, when you go whitewater rafting, the first thing that the guide will tell you before you even leave the shore is that there's a chance you're going to get knocked out of the boat into the rough water. The last thing you want to do is flail about trying to save yourself by grabbing onto the boulders and branches around you. You're going to get beaten and bruised and maybe worse. You may drown. But if you trust that you can float and you lean back mm -hmm. and feet up and let that white water carry you around the boulders, mm -hmm. right? Let the current carry you to calmer waters. Your chances of survival are far greater. Your chances of avoiding injury are far greater. And I just thought that was... Right such a beautiful metaphor for not only life and navigating grief but also as an artist we fall into the white water all the time and the beauty of of allowing the current to carry you and trusting that you can float can actually bring you to very rich depths of of self and and understanding that this river is long. This river is long. Getting back to the aging question, you know, um, it's a beautiful well, thing. Well, and that practice, 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 practice. We, you know, do it, do the best the first time. It didn't work out so well, but we'll do it again. And we get, so I always think too, that we're in it for the long run. We don't have to be a success right now. We don't have to master this. Mastery is really a, a, a lifelong occupation. It's not something that we're going to get. Uh, and of course, cultivating patience is always. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's the art a of lifelong aging. practice too. <laughs> that's the art of aging. Really, it's cultivation of of healthy ways of being. That's that's what aging well means to me. Yes. You are along the way, you know, picking up these wonderful tools. Shadow and Light LLC was established by Dave Roberts and Reverend Patty Farino, co-authors of When the Psychology Professor Met the Minister. Their mission is to empower individuals to transcend life's challenges by integrating spiritual practices with psychology to achieve peace. They are available for individualized spiritual counseling, virtual or in-person book club meetings, or presentations and workshops to universities, organizations, and other interested groups. For further information, visit psychologyprofessorandminister.com.
One of the things that I've, I've taken to doing uh, in this, this is my fourth season with the Lost Traveler podcast. We have listeners in 45 countries now, which I'm over the moon about, mm -hmm. um, is I've been asking each co-host to think of a question intuitively for the next co-host without even knowing who they are. And so I have a question for you as we're wrapping up this hour. I can't believe it's already been okay. almost an hour. Um, and this question that was intuitively asked for you is twofold. One, what ways do you think peace is achievable in our time? And what brings you to a place of peace? Hmm. Not to put you on wow. the spot, but <laughs> and then you <laughs> asking questions. <laughs> So what one thing do I is the first question is peace achievable or one thing? Well, assuming I know what it, assuming that it is, what ways do you think peace is achievable in our time? You know, at the end of Eliot, uh, George Eliot's Middle March, she talks about how life is really sustained by the actions of people, I think she says, whose graves will never be visited. Mm. So they're the anonymous people. And um, I think as an artist, as a composer, I always have to wonder what uses the work that I do when I should be out there feeding starving people or working towards global, you know, um, reconciliation or doing the big things. And I, uh, the excuse I have made up for myself or the, the reasoning that I have made up before is that I, I do think that um, people have gifts that they're given and not to use those gifts would kind of be a crime and I really believe that the work I do um, is important it's certainly important to me uh audience members has says it's important to them certainly my book I've gotten so much wonderful feedback and reviews about the book um that's not to say that if I had been unsuccessful I would have still not have been working towards a better world. So I don't think that success is necessarily, but I guess, you know, the shakers have this uh, thing that they say, they say hands to work, hearts to God. And my interpretation is everything you do has to have the same uh, connection as you have with God so that I I bring to everything I do that sense of my heart to God so if I pick up trash in my neighborhood if I'm kind to people if I I try to teach with with most integrity that I can if I teach not what I want to teach but I teach modified to each student and their needs 
if I write music that is the, to the best of my ability, that, you know, my hands are to work and my hearts are to God. And I believe in, and to others, it may sound simplistic or like I'm making a big old excuse for myself, but that's what I believe is that if you live your life with purpose and love and really with the idea of always being peaceful, uh, showing it in every part of what you do, even how you drive your car, yeah. you know, sometimes it's really hard for me not to get irritated at the, Perfect. you know, it's taken me years when I, somebody's behind me and they're like trying to get past me and they're so impatient to just move over to the side, yeah. you know, just get off the road. Um, and that is a peaceful thing. The word that comes yeah, that to mind is, is reverence. Mm -hmm. Is treating yourself and everyone around you with every action, every thought, and every word with reverence. And and sometimes I don't cut the grade. Of course, like, none of us. <laughs> we all have that moment. And what brings you to right. a peace personally? What brings you to that place? Oh boy, you know not you know certainly dealing with my issues has been so productive for me it's just given me so much space i would say right now being okay with boundaries and that sounds kind of like what but when i bought this property it's about an acre and a half and you know i have three stepchildren and i have a daughter and one of the things I said to them, I said, I love it when you visit me. I just love it, love it, love it. But I just want you to know that I have a magical electric fence all around my property. Love that. And it won't let drama in. I am happy if you talk to me about all your problems and you're doing something about it. But if you're here to complain, you're going to be caught at that fence. And you'll be saying, how come I can't come in? It's not fair. I have so much to complain about. But I think reducing drama, uh, being willing to have the strength to say, I can't fix you. I will listen to you if, if it makes sense. But there are times when I can't listen to you. Um, I think as a woman, that's been very difficult because I'm supposed to be giving and loving. And certainly I spent a lot of times to my own detriment, taking care of other people, uh, but to really feel solid in my own self-worth, to be able to say, I love you. I will listen to you. I'm not gonna help you with this. This is, you know, because honestly, you know, if you're an alcoholic, the only one who can save you is you. And it doesn't matter what I say. You know, so I think that <laughs> my electric fence has given me a lot of peace. Yes. Well, that's part of education, isn't it? I mean, don't, we don't I think so. We're not taught at any level. Uh, we're not given that permission to set that invisible electric fence around ourselves that that saves us and others from the drama that could, you know, we could fall into that abyss. Oh. And so I think that's absolutely right. And part of this conversation of education 
is how do, you, how do you practice healthy detachment and create those force fields around yourself that repel drama? And, and it's such a great example for your children and people around you. So that they, I think, think that you are living a life that people would say, oh, I kind of like what she's doing in her life. I think I want some of that. You and know? isn't that how peace is achievable <laughs> in our time? I mean, that's the answer, isn't right. it? I mean, I do that in my, my social right. media. People know that they don't yes. opinionate because I don't opinionate on my social media. If you want to know what right. I think about something, right. ask me. Ask me privately. Right. I'm happy to share. Mm -hmm. but I don't post. Mm -hmm. you know, I have a rule for myself that I would not post anything on social media that I wouldn't want, want on the front page of the New York Times. <laughs> no opinion piece. You know, uh, <laughs> right. The author, the wonderful author, Mary Gordon, who I've worked with, I had sent her a draft of my book mm. and she wrote back and she had some thoughts but the one thought that she had that I loved was make sure you are on every page. And I thought, what does that mean? Mm. Well, don't use you. You should do this or you should do it or we should do this. It's uh, this is I, what I am thinking. I will share this with you. Take it or leave it. Right. You don't like it. No problem. But that. That wanting other people, you know, the shoulds and the woulds. <laughs> so what is your what is your question for the next? Oh, I, I love putting people on the spot. Oh, wow. <laughs> you do. You do. Um, I'm going to say, what grows in your garden? Ooh, I love that. That's... That could be anything. That could be your inner garden. That could be your actual garden. It could be flowers. It could be container garden. It could be vegetables. It could be anything. It could be anything. It could be your relationship with the outside world. It could be, I yeah. don't know. Yeah. Um, someone is at my door. This is the the life living. Okay, a, tiny, a, a tiny village. I love it. Look at this. We're right on time. I want to thank you so very much. Let your heart be broken. I will put a link in the description mm -hmm. below. Thank you, Tina, mm -hmm. so much. This was a real gift. Oh, it's been such a pleasure. Such a pleasure. Thank you. We'll talk again soon. Totally. I'm in for it. You've been listening to season four of the Lost Traveler podcast with Henry Cameron Allen. Visit me online at henryallen.org. Thank you to my guests and thank you for tuning in. Let's keep striving for a better world together.